So I'm honored this morning to have the opportunity to come and share with you out of Philippians, the second half of chapter 3. <laughs> and as we move into this second half of Philippians 3, Paul continues with his thoughts here towards the life of the believer. Pastor Scott wrapped it up so well last week as he discussed Paul's meaning at the very end of the, those, the <clears throat> excuse me, verse 11, as he says, uh, I'm attaining or working to attain the resurrection. And that, that idea of attaining the resurrection not being about something that I work to do or something that I can do to receive the resurrection, but instead to arrive at that place of the resurrection. Reminding us that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus is the only way for the resurrection. The work has been done. And so as Paul comes into here, he moves into this idea, as he moves into the second half of chapter 3, he begins with, not that I have already obtained all of this or been made perfect. In other words, Paul says, I'm not there yet. I don't have it all figured out. There are still things that I am working through. I am not fully conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ just yet. There are things that I'm still working through. As he talks about in Philippians 2, I'm still working out my salvation with fear and trembling. And remember, the idea behind that is not that I'm, I'm working things out so that I can be saved, not the idea that it's something I can do and that I have to work on before I'm worthy of the cross of Christ. Rather, no, I'm working out the effects of the cross of Christ to me. As Pastor Scott said last week in his sermon again, the N and the E being the two letters that separate Christianity from all other religions. Because other religions say, do, do, do. Do this to be right with God. Do this to get good favor. Do this for good karma or whatever it might be. But the cross of Christ says done. It is finished. It is accomplished. It has been completed the work has been done as I teach at our chapels at the school we've been in the book of James and we've been talking a lot about how when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior the work that he comes in and the Holy Spirit begins to do in our hearts as we are a new creation in Christ that is the overflow of that work that brings about good fruit. It's the overflow of that work of Christ Jesus in our lives, freeing us from sin that brings about the good works. And so this idea of working out the salvation is working through those things. The work of the cross is enough. Salvation is there. It has been done. But he says, I'm not perfect yet. There's still those things in my life that I am working through. We know that's where Paul talked about this thorn that's in his flesh that he asked God to take away, and he, he didn't. And he says, I know I'm not perfect. There's still these things that I'm working through. And Paul knows, as we all do, that the only time that we will be truly conformed and come to that place of perfection is when we stand face to face with our Savior in heaven. And so he says, I'm not perfect. I'm not done. I'm not there Yet, the Holy Spirit is still working to draw me closer to Christ, to increase my knowledge and obedience to God. I will not truly arrive 
until I am there in heaven. And this is true for us too. Whether we've given our heart to Christ for 90 seconds or 90 years, there are still things that we are working out. There are still areas that God is working on in our lives. There are still places that we are working to conform ourselves to that of Jesus Christ. There are still those areas that we struggle with. There are still those areas where we are learning and we are growing. There are still those areas where God is working in our hearts and in our lives. So we strengthen our faith, strengthen our walk in Him. So what is our option if there's still more to do? Paul comes to that same place. And so the next verse, he gives us that answer. He says, I press on. I press on. I continue in the work. I continue to move forward. I press on in faithfulness, in humbleness, in growth, in working to conform more and more to Jesus, in to grow in my understanding of God and His will. Paul states he presses on to take hold of that for which he was taken hold of by Jesus Christ. And he writes it in this way that he says, Christ first laid hold of him. And I want us to think about that phrase for just a minute. Christ first laid hold of him. Again, not that Paul had pursued him enough, to actually have him come and meet him. Not that Paul had done anything to deserve for Christ to come to him, but that Christ first laid hold of him right here. That the work was done on the cross as Jesus went there to die for our sins, as Jesus went there to suffer and to die for Paul, for you, for me, for all of mankind who ever has been, is today, or will be tomorrow, that he first laid hold of Paul. Matter of fact, in the midst of Paul's persecution of the church is when he came and met him where he was. And to think of that, that phrase of that idea that he first laid hold of me. Again, nothing that I did to deserve this. Nothing more than the love of our Savior took him to the cross for us and for our salvation. Now, Paul had a pretty big encounter to think about when he was reminded of this, when he was made aware of this, right, on the road to Damascus and, and the great light and coming in around him and hearing the voice Paul or saw at that point, why are you persecuting me and, 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 and the light going away and him being blind and having been led to the city and, and sitting in this household and, and, and saying, what am I going to do? What's going on? And then the faithfulness of another believer to come and, and, and to prophesy over him and to pray for him and his sight to be given back to him. This is a grand event in the life of Paul of when Christ laid hold of him or he was made aware that Christ laid hold of him. And many of us think about, mine doesn't look like that. Matter of fact, take just a moment and think back through your life. Where is it you've seen God pursuing you? Where is it you've seen God working to reveal to you that he first laid hold of you through Jesus Christ? 
for me, as I think back to it, I, I began with my parents and my grandparents who lovingly showed me what it was to follow Jesus, who brought me to church, who taught me how to read the word of God, who prayed with me and set that example and taught me what it is to pray, what it is to seek God for things, what it is to understand grace and forgiveness through the cross of Christ. Think of my youth pastors and my baseball coach and my band director. And I, I think of uh, a student ministries leader in college who gave me the opportunity to lead in all these places along the way. And I see God put them into my life as he pursued me. And to remind me that he first laid hold of me. Who is it in your life? Who are those that God has put in your path? Maybe is putting there now. To remind you of those things. To encourage you. To teach you. To bring you to the cross. Maybe for the first time. When we think of Paul, we say, man, his was huge and his was great. And of course I would tell that story. Who wouldn't? Right? But I, I, I grew up in a Christian household and things have always gone pretty well. What do I really have to share? But that is your story. That is your testimony. That is your voice. That is your example of how God pursued you. This is Paul's example. Both are equally as important because Paul's example will speak to some and yours will speak to others. Where is it in your life to you see God pursuing you to remind you that he first laid hold of you through Jesus Christ? Paul says, I've, I've not even fully taken hold of that yet. What that is and what that means, he says, but the one thing I do is forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul returns to that imagery of the, of the runner running the race. The idea of not allowing the things in the past to distract or to cause him to let up or slow down. If we think about the life of Paul at this point in his life, a lot of things God had used him to accomplish a lot of things. And so the temptation could be there to say, I've suffered a lot for Jesus. I've done a lot of work here. I'm still writing these letters to the, these churches. I think I'm just going to coast the rest of the way. I think I'm going to move into retirement and I'm just going to kind of hang out and let others finish out and I'm just going to kind of coast in. Temptation's there, could be there. How many times have we seen this played out even in the athletic arena, right? Team comes in as the heavy favorite. They've beaten everybody. They've beaten this team twice before. They come in going, oh, it's just them. We got it. We've already won this twice. And by the third quarter, they're on their heels behind in the game and they may even lose because they begin to coast. They begin to let up. They begin to say, ah, oh, it won't be that big a deal. Paul says, no, I press on. I strain 
forward. The other thing that, 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 so there's the successes and those sides of it, but there's also, and oftentimes people struggle with this maybe even more, is the idea of, look who I was. Look at what I did before I knew Jesus. Look at my life prior to that. How could he use me? Why would he want to use me? Good or bad, the past has the opportunity to distract us and cause us to let up. But Paul says, no, I press on reaching forward for what lies ahead. And that, that again, that, that imagery, that, the imagery even of that phrase reaching forward is the idea of the runner running the race and as he gets to the finish line, gathering up all his remaining strength to press forward and to finish with everything he's got for the prize. And that's the imagery that Paul says, I, I reach out, I gather up everything I have to finish well and to run hard the race. As one writer puts it, it's a deception to either live in the past or the future. God wants us to press on in the present because the present is where eternity touches us now. The present is where we can proclaim Jesus Christ. He is the one who will rule eternal. It is his kingdom that has no end. It is he who can change the eternity of people as they accept him as Lord and Savior. It is we who get to carry that message out. And it is we in the present who can speak those eternal words in the lives of those around us. It is we who have the opportunity to touch eternity through Jesus in those moments. Paul says, leaving those things behind, I press on. I strive forward. I strain for the finish line. And what is there? Awaiting me. The goal is the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. To remove ourselves, to remove our eyes from ourselves and from the things around us and the things pressing in and to look heavenward. And to know that we are in the hands of the one who is all powerful. The one who rules supreme, the one who spoke and it was in the beginning, the one who speaks and it is. And when we read the back of the book, the one who wins. Right? This is where our eyes are focused. This is where our hope lies. This is where our strength comes from. This is the one who is teaching us, who has grabbed a hold of our heart, who has laid hold of us first, that we may press on. And it is my hope and my prayer for myself that when I come to the end of my life, of my time, of my race, it can be said of me, as Paul wrote to Timothy, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have reached forward to the end into what lies ahead in the upper call of Jesus Christ, which we see in verse 8 there. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also to all those who have loved his appearing. Wow. That's where we strive to be. That is what awaits us on the other side of the race. 
Why not gather every last bit we have and finish well? To be greeted by the open arms of our Savior saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Wow. We strain forward. We press on. And Paul then moves on to encourage the Philippians. He encourages them to have the same attitude as him towards this idea of pressing on in faithfulness. And he even says, if there's anywhere there is lack of this commitment in your life, I trust God to show that to you as well. And the beautiful thing is we can trust God to show it to us also, right? What Paul said to them still applies today. We still have a God who is living and breathing and active. The Holy Spirit dwells within us as the messenger of the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. He says, if there's any area that that there is lack, I trust he will show that to you as well. May we have that same attitude. May we have that same trust in our Father to show it and that same humbleness to receive it when he does. And to say, Father, help me work on it in your power and for your will. When Paul finishes that out with saying to keep that same standard at where we are. In other words, as I, as I think about that, he's saying is, as you're straining forward, don't, don't drop those things that have helped you get to where you are today. As you continue on, don't forget those spiritual disciplines that have brought you to the place of maturity where you are today. And then as you continue to grow, to be moving forward and up. And I think about that in my own life and, 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 and encouragement for you too is, is as you are growing in your faith, remember those simple things that helped you grow. Those quiet times of being in the Word. Perhaps it's walks with Jesus in the park. Worshiping in your car as you drive to work. But those moments where you and the Father have that time together. that relationship growing and being nurtured. Don't forget those things. Continue on in that. Stay at that standard, as Paul puts it, to move forward. Then Paul brings it to the practical, and he says, Join in following my example, and observe those who, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now Paul's not saying, Look at me, I've got it all figured out. You can only follow me. I'm the example. Nope, nowhere else. But he says, no, look at me and the life that I live. Yes, but also there are others in the church who are doing it well. Observe them as well. It's not just about me. It's about seeing those who are there with you and see the life that they're living. Observe those and follow after those as well. And as I, I think about where Paul is going here and what he's encouraging them to, my mind, I, I'm brought back to the idea of discipleship and mentorship. As I think about those that I mentioned earlier, my parents and, and, and teachers and those who were influential in my life, where those things happened, where that influence took place was in the midst of the life on life, the midst of times of praying together, walking through things together, me coming and asking questions or struggling through things with them. And it's in those places that God was working things out in my life through those people. And I think about that opportunity that we have in the lives of others. 
Just as Paul says, follow my example, to whom can we say the same? To whom can we say, follow after me as I follow after Christ? And I think about this idea of discipleship, and, and, I, and I think about even the mission of our church, right? To live a full life in Jesus, to be in, in, in relationship with those people who are discipling us, and we are looking to them as the example and learning and growing, and to bring others along for the ride is those that we come now and put our arm around and say, let me walk with you. And it's on both sides of the coin. So I ask you today, who do you have on this side that you are looking to as the example? Who do you have on this side that you go to with your questions and your struggles? Who do you have on this side that you ask to pray for you and that you walk with to continue to learn and to grow? And then who do you have? Who has God brought into your life on this side? to walk with them, to encourage them, to challenge them, to point them back and to bring them to the foot of the cross. And to be faithful in both. As a parent, I think of my children as one of my foremost and most important. Deuteronomy 6 puts that square on us as mom and dad. But who else? Co-workers, the neighbor, a relative, a friend. Who is it God's put in your life to come alongside of? Perhaps a young boy that we play chess with. And God opens those doors to speak life, to speak truth. So as you ponder that, think about that. God, who do I have that that you've put in my life that I may follow an example and have those to help me grow? And who is it you've put in my life that I may be that example and to draw them and to help them grow as well? Follow my example, Paul says, and observe those in the church who are doing it well. Wow. Paul then takes a little turn and moves into those who were not setting that example well. Earlier on, we heard about the, the Judaizers who said, this, this grace that Paul teaches is a cheap grace. There's got to be something you have to do to earn that grace. There's got to be, you still got to follow all the laws and all these things to, if you really want to be saved. And, and, and it can't just be a free gift. There's got to be something that you've got to do, and be it circumcision or whatever it might be. You've got to follow these rules. And they were these legalistic on this side of legalism. Well, there was others that Paul's talking about here who went to the total opposite side and said, if there's grace, there's no reason for law. If there's grace, I can do whatever I want and just be forgiven. There's no reason for moral restraint or for following the laws of God. And Paul says, no, no. Matter of fact, he says, I weep as I think of those people. I weep as I think of their influence on those around them. And he says, they are enemies of the cross. They stand in opposition to what the cross is all about. He says, their appetite is their God. Not just thinking about their stomachs, but thinking in broader terms of their flesh. Their worldly lusts are their God. 
These are the things that are most important to them. These are the things that they pursue. These are the things that they look after. And this is what their life is all about. And he says the end for them is destruction, is death. He says they, they glory in their shame. Think about that for a minute. They glory in their shame. We've all either heard or been a part of these conversations where someone comes in after the weekend telling about the crazy party they went and bragging about all that they drank or whatever it might have been and the things that they took part of over that weekend. And it's, it's a point of pride for them. There it is. These things that should be shameful in their life they see to glorify themselves and to build themselves up because they participated in it. And they glory in their shame, he says. And their end is destruction. That's hard. That's hard. To think about that place where they are. Paul says that may be their focus, the things of here on earth, he says, but our, our citizenship, our focus is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And, and now if you think about uh, Philippi, I know a little bit about it. It was a Roman colony. So the people there, many people there were Roman citizens and considered Roman citizens. Even though Philippi was a long ways away from Rome, they were still Roman citizens and enjoyed the benefits of being a Roman citizen that non-Roman citizens did not enjoy. And so they lived as Romans even though they were far from Rome because we are Roman citizens. We are a part of Philippi, this Roman colony that is run by Rome and under the rules of Rome. And so we have these rights and live as citizens of Rome. And Paul says, we may be far from heaven, but we are citizens of heaven. And so we live as citizens of heaven. We enjoy the benefits of heaven. We enjoy the benefits of the cross and not being bound to sin, being able to choose not to sin and to live in the freedom that is given to us in Jesus Christ. To live in the hope of heaven, to live in the power of our living God. To live our lives not bound to earth, to sin, but rather enjoy the benefits of that heavenly citizenship. And the expectation and the hope of the coming of Jesus Christ as he continues on, where he and his omnipotent power will transform our earthly bodies to conform to his glorious heavenly body. Oh, what a day. Oh, what a day. And as Paul concludes this piece, he, he concludes it really with that first verse of chapter 4 and kind of launches us into chapter 4 with it as well. He says, you think of these things as you live your life as citizens of heaven, working to pursue God and pressing on for the goal of completing the work God has for you, Christ Jesus. Stand firm. Stand Firm. Stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your work. Stand firm in your obedience to God. Stand firm in the Lord. Let us be encouraged through this passage to continue on in what God has called us to do. 
Just as Paul knew, Jesus had laid hold to him for a reason. So he has laid hold of each of us for a reason as well. As we think about Ephesians 2, 10, Jesus went to the cross. It is by grace through faith that you have been saved, not by works that no man may boast. And then in verse 10 it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we press on, as we strain forward, as we stand firm in our faith, there are works and good works, kingdom works, works for the kingdom of God that he has called and commissioned you to do. We know throughout scripture in the Psalms as we read, God knit you together in your mother's womb. God put you together just the way that he wanted to. Your strengths, your weaknesses, your likes, your dislikes, your gifts, your talents, your hobbies, all these things come together to make you who you are so that the good works he, before, he gave beforehand could be accomplished. Because he has put you together in such a way that you can best fulfill those things. He has given you a voice into someone's life that nobody else has to speak truth. He's given you a connection to someone that others may not have to speak truth, to share Jesus, to put your arm around them and to bring them along for the ride. Some of those things we look in the mirror and go, oh, God, why'd you do that? Because there's good works he has in store for you to do. Yes, there are things in our own flesh that we have to work out and we have to continue. That's part of straining forward. That's part of growing. But he laid hold of you for a purpose. He laid hold of you for a purpose. And in the present, through Jesus Christ, we may touch eternity in the lives of those around us. What an amazing gift. What an amazing opportunity. What amazing encouragement to stand firm and to press on in what God has called you to do. Father, what is it you're calling me to do today as a citizen of heaven? How are you calling me to fulfill your work in your kingdom, be it at the grocery store, in our families, dinner table, at our workplaces, at school, wherever it might be? Thank you, Jesus, for the work you did on the cross to lay hold of us before we could ever do anything. You came for us. It is done. It is up to us to believe in it and to accept it and receive that gift. To follow hard after you. But the work is done. And we remember that work today that Christ did for us on the cross as we take communion together this morning. May we continue in our worship in all that we do today. In Jesus' name.